Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Hello and welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Parr. Every week I interview an Olympic champion, a world champion, a former world record holder or a former world number one to find out what they do to become the very best in their sport. This week I speak to the swimmer Rebecca Sony. Fun chat with Rebecca. Very similar to the one I had with Stephanie Rice a few weeks ago where we talk about her success at the Beijing Olympics. Also her success at the London 2012 Games And even though she lost in the 100 metres breaststroke final, she talks about how good it was to be part of making history when she got silver, losing to the 15-year-old Lithuanian Ruta Melutite. I think that's how you pronounce her name anyway. It's not one of the easiest names. (laughs) Anyway, it's a fun chat with Rebecca on the programme. We talk about her being vegan since she's retiring. In fact, we also talk about what she's been up to since she decided to retire after those London games in 2012. We talk a lot about goal setting. We also talk about her move from New Jersey all the way to California. There's lots of great content and great knowledge on The Best in the World with Richard Parr, and it is a real delight to speak to Rebecca. All right, before we get to that interview, I want to tell you about Audible. Audible is one of the leading suppliers of audiobooks in the world. They've got over 180,000 titles for you to choose from, and you can listen to it on your iPad, your iPhone, your Kindle, your MP3 player. It's something that I personally use, and I really recommend that you should give it a try. In fact, Audible are offering you a free 30-day trial with one free download, so you can listen to any book for free. Go and try it out. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash best. One more time, it's audibletrial.com forward slash best. All right, let's get to the interview with the best in the world. It's the Olympic gold medal swimmer, Rebecca Sony. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Rebecca Sony, three-time Olympic gold medalist in swimming. Thank you so much for being on The Best in the World with Richard Parr. Of course, you've now retired from competitive swimming. Won't you update our listeners exactly what you're up to now, please? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat about everything. And at the moment, I retired in 2012. So it's been several years since I've been out of training and competing. And since then, 
what I've done is I've started and I'm working on a project with a good friend of mine, Caroline Burkwell, fellow Olympian swimmer. And together we have created Rise Elite Athletes, which is an online mentorship platform helping young athletes connect with the most elite athletes in the world for one-on-one mentorship all about the uh, mental side of sport because it's incredibly important and yet we do not uh, train the mental side we kind of hope that it just happens for us and and at the same time there's so much that we can do uh, to train for it so we basically help to supplement uh, athletes physical training with the addition of uh, mental training as well that's amazing. That's a little bit like we learn on the best in the world every week, but actually you get the direct access to the amazing athletes such as yourself. That's incredible. So what are type of some of the type of things you're, you're teaching uh, these children? Well, it's a lot. I mean, we, we certainly do a lot of exercises for, uh, you know, mental exercises, writing, gratitude, mindfulness. Uh, we're really just trying to little by little implement some good skills into their everyday training and into essentially into their lives. And another important component of what we do aside from the exercises and, and the, you know, what we do teach them is also just the one-on-one connection yes you're connected with one of the best athletes in your sport uh, but at the same time excuse me at the same time the one-on-one connection is something that I think we've overlooked in our fast-paced society these days and so just having somebody who's there to support the the young athlete and everything that they're going through not just in their sport and in training but just uh, helping them by just being being there for them, having somebody that's just there for them. And that must be so rewarding for you as well. Yes, absolutely. I, I know that both myself and all of my mentors that work with Rise uh, feel the same, that we're often saying, well, I think I'm getting more out of this than my <laughs> athletes are. So you mentioned about the, the different facets that you want the these young swimmers and young athletes to kind of learn. So you, you mentioned kind of routine there and daily activities. Are you someone who who sticks to a uh, who sticks to a strict routine? I certainly enjoy routine coming from training as a full-time job routine is built into our dna (laughs) as something that gives us uh, structure and satisfaction so i'm a little bit of both routine and free flow i love my morning routines i really try to adhere to you know certain things throughout my day but if i if i can't i'm not going to beat myself up about it <laughs> so it's it's one part routine one part free flow so let's get to the nitty gritty what are some of those things which are always in your routine every single day rebecca I certainly do try to get my morning routine, which is a little bit of uh, yoga and movement and breath. I, it's nothing crazy. I just like to you know, wake up my spine and move around a little bit before I start my day, uh, followed up by a little bit of meditation, uh, walking the dog, which is probably more for the me than, than for the dog. It's always good to get outside and, and kind of you know, finish up the morning routine that way. Um, but, you know, throughout the day, the important staples are, are getting moving, <laughs> staying active, either going for a run or 
or swim or something to get the blood flowing, um, eating well, trying to get a green smoothie in if I can, <laughs> things like that, um, as well as also kind of a winding down routine uh, in the evening to, to get ready for sleep. And how similar is what you're doing now compared to when you were in the, the real height of training? I think the routines are different uh, as far as, you know, the morning routine, whereas uh, in the morning it was getting ready for practice. <laughs> now it's kind of getting ready for being in my office all day. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are some, you know, definitely some differences. But bottom line is it, it's it's just about, you know, stating this is what I plan to do. Uh, the thing that I'm doing is different, but the planning is the same. Okay, so when you when you say planning, are you someone who once you've done your meditation, once you've done your yoga, do you write down what you're going to do for the day, or have you already written it, or have you got goals set? How how do you work all of that out? Yeah, I I do try to get a little writing time in the morning, right when I start my workday, um, a little bit of gratitude, a little bit of objectives for the day, what I aim to get done, as well as what uh, I'm trying to get done, let's say for February, since that's the month that we're in. Uh, at the beginning of the month, I'll set a couple of goals to, to keep myself focused uh, when I'm sitting here uh, getting distracted. So I do like to set those objectives, you know, at the start of my workday, but just outside of work, it's always good to the night before kind of touch base with here are the things that I'd like to get done, whether it's I'd like to go to the pool <laughs> for a swim tomorrow and, you know, just getting a, my head around what I what I plan to do tomorrow to, you know, to make it the best day that it can be to achieve all the different things I'm trying to achieve. What happens if you don't meet those goals for the day? Do you get frustrated and do they sometimes snowball? You say, oh, I'll do it tomorrow and then I'll do it tomorrow. And then do how, how, how do you stop that from happening? <laughs> you know, it's usually the smaller things that end up snowballing because <laughs> I don't uh, prioritize them because there are always more important things. Uh, but no, I don't get frustrated. I, I know that each day is, is pretty jam-packed, at least you know, for my schedule of things I'm trying to balance both important work things to less important just stuff around the house or I love cooking. So to me, it's really important to be in the kitchen. And and so I have all these different things that, you know, while work might be more important as far as my overall day, I know that, you know, spending time in the kitchen, let's say, is also important to me. So if I need to... <laughs> Uh, divert my attention a little bit and, you know, put off completing a goal that I've set for the day. I, I know that there's tomorrow and, and, you know, within reason, it'll get done. So I, I tend not to get frustrated and just say, you know, I, I know that I'm doing the best that I can. And so, you know, there's not much to be frustrated about. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned food there. What is your typical diet each day? I am, I'm vegan. I've been vegan for four years now, and I really, really love uh, both the lifestyle and the food. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love cooking. I love exploring places. Granted, I live in Los Angeles, so there's plenty of amazing restaurants and farmers markets and so much here. Um, but in general, I try to I try to just get as much healthy living nutrients into <laughs> into my body into my life. I fruits and vegetables. Um, I you know, I really love cooking, like I said, so 
uh, in the, for usually lunch is my biggest meal and I'll, I'll try to make like a, you know, amazing, beautiful, massive salad (laughs) (laughs) with a lot of my farmer's market goods. Um, I really, I just enjoy being around vibrant food, um, alive food, fruits and vegetables and, and, you know, spending time in the kitchen, chopping them up and making delicious food is, is something I really, really love to do. What's your go-to recipe? What's the one recipe when you're trying to impress someone? <laughs> um, I think a go-to is my chickpea scramble. It's kind of a, uh, you know, a, a omelet replacement, if you will. Uh, but it's really, really delicious. A lot of people don't know you can make this like pancake-like thing out of chickpeas and it's really truly delicious oh wonderful so you said you've been doing that for the last four years now according to my mathematics were 2017 you retired 2012 so you weren't doing that when you were competing do you think you could have lived this diet when you were competing as a uh, an olympic swimmer i i do and honestly it's one of my biggest regrets is that i hadn't tried or learned about it yet i i know that um it, it was a general evolution of just the knowledge that I was starting to seek after retirement. So I wasn't looking for it when I was swimming. I wasn't aware of it. And and I honestly wish that I had and I know that I could have done it. I think traveling would have been challenging. Uh, the, the meets and competitions where your food is kind of out of your hands. But as far as just nutritionally and uh, functioning as a high level athlete, I know that it would have not only been possible, but been beneficial to my performance. Mm. So what type of foods were you eating when you were competing? I was eating a pretty typical healthy diet. I always, you know, I liked eating clean. I liked feeling uh, clean, but I I mean, it was just kind of normal. Morning was, I mean, some in some ways not all that different. In the morning was uh, oatmeal before practice, and um, you know I'd make salads for lunch. But when I say salad, I mean like really big and with <laughs> lots of stuff on it. It's not nothing skimpy. Um, but I you know I was eating the chicken and and uh, stuff like that for dinner or fish, and um, I certainly already loved food, so I loved cooking. But um, yeah, it was kind of a basic, typical, so-called clean, healthy diet. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go to this, the start of your, your life as a swimmer. When did you first start swimming and when did you realize that you were good at it? I started swimming when I was 10 years old. And I don't know if I realized I was good at it around 13, though, but that's when I really fell in love with the sport. Uh, in the beginning, I was just thrown in to be, you know, the same place as my big sister. <laughs> and so I didn't love it all that much at first. But around 13 was when I really started to connect with what we were doing in the practices and the water and start to, I guess, take ownership of it. Um, around 13 was also when I made it to nationals, which is pretty young <laughs> to mm. get to nationals. So um, I guess i I, I didn't really think too much about it, but I knew that I was doing something right, <laughs> I guess. You're from Jersey, right? Correct. And so, and then, then you eventually made the, the journey over to uh, the West Coast. How, how, how was that adjustment for you? It was, I mean, it was great. I came out to Los Angeles to go to USC and I've been here ever since, but the transition was, was definitely an interesting one. As a kid in New Jersey, you're kind of 
trained to think that California is this magical land, and it certainly is sunshine and, you know, you're outdoors and uh, but the transition was definitely tough, especially a city like Los Angeles. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of, you know, fashion and and just stuff that was not a part of my life in New Jersey. And, and granted, I don't necessarily participate much in that, but just being around it was a bit of a culture shock <laughs> for sure, especially as a young 17 or 18 year old. But um yeah, I've loved being out here and you know, just from my everyday life kind of transition, training outdoors. I mean, <laughs> big difference from breathing chlorine indoors in New Jersey. Every practice, um, the sunshine and, and just kind of living that more outdoorsy life on a day to day was a great, great transition. It's amazing how sun can change your world. <laughs> <laughs> and your first Olympic Games was 2008. It, it turned out to be a pretty successful uh, one for you. Just tell us about that whole Olympic experience in Beijing for you. Yeah, it was it was amazing. I, I never as a kid, thought I would be an Olympian. I never even thought about it and said it wasn't an option. It just wasn't on my radar. And I don't think I thought of the possibility until 2007. So the year before I made it, I realized, wow, I'm I'm the top in my events in the nation. And if I'm here next year, I'll be on the Olympic team or I at least have a chance to go for it. So, you know, it was that kind of described the mentality of all of Beijing, which was that it was just such a pleasure to be there. It was so amazing and exciting and everything was new to me. And, you know, the dining hall was amazing. The dorms were amazing. Were they really amazing? No, but it was the Olympics, <laughs> you know, so it, it was just a really great experience. And of course, you know, there's nerves, there's pressure. But when it came to the competition, I, I always remembered what a friend of mine had told me who'd been to the Olympics uh, before, and she said, you know, it's just another meet. <laughs> and, it, and it really is on, on, you know, when you're in the nitty gritty of eight days of competition, which is a really long time, it just turns into another meet where you're doing the same things over and over and over. And, you know, of course, when you're standing behind the blocks, you're, you know, the, you know, what's on the line here, but, um, it just, it just, it was a blast all around. And, and obviously I performed way better than I had expected to. And just, you know, everything about that um, whole experience was just so much fun. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Did you consider yourself a, a medal hopeful? What were your goals going into that games? My goals were to, in my mind, Liesl Jones, who was the uh, reigning world championship world champion and gold medalist from the previous olympics in my mind and i think the rest of the world's mind she was going to win <laughs> and so my goals really were silver i wanted to um it was a race for a second in my mind <laughs> and so yeah I, I certainly had metal hopes but uh, there was wasn't that pressure of you need to win or <laughs> you, you know there was no need to medal it was just all right let's see what we can do Hmm, yeah. Do, do you think that that helped you in the end to beat her because you didn't put your pressure on to beat her? You almost just trying to perform your best. Absolutely. And that's how I always approached it. I, While I knew that she was currently the best in the world, I didn't know her 
splits. I didn't know how she trained. I, I didn't, I don't like to get too wrapped up in what other people were doing or what their times were. I just focused on myself and what I could do. And, and I, I certainly loved the underdog <laughs> position that, that I like uh, from, you know, from the beginning, I'd always liked to be in that position. So I think that that mentality certainly helped to perform the way that I did. So when you got that gold medal in the 200 meters breaststroke, you broke the world record. Just what was going through your mind when, when you won that race? <laughs> I don't even know. It's it's such a an amazing moment when you touch the wall and you first realize what's happened. The race felt amazing. And I mean, I, I couldn't have asked for <laughs> a better race. And then of course, you're, you're flooded with emotions from first of all, you've been nervous and like twitching for the last 24 hours, and you're finally done. And then second of all, to have perform that way and have a gold medal I just remembered like I don't even know what to think right now this is so overwhelming but amazing and uh, it was just it was really quite an experience a whirlwind of <laughs> excitement and and just so much emotion I, I can imagine um, so leading up into that race as, as I found speaking to a lot of the Olympic champions they, they keep very much the same routine and their superstitions before any kind of race be it a final was that the same for you and what was typically in your pre-race routine and, and did you have any rituals at all Routines were huge. Uh, I, I over you know the years of swimming and racing, I developed what worked before a race for a routine, and so my routine essentially started about an hour and a half before race time. So it's come in to the pool area and a certain series of stretches, and you know it could kind of change up, but spending a lot of time stretching, and then from the warm up, everything was a very routine thing. And so I was big on routines, not necessarily superstitions, but, but, you know, in a way the routine was the superstition. Um, I remember when I was a kid, everybody had these like little trinkets or something that this is my lucky thing. And I thought, Oh, how cool. Let me, you know, let me do that. And I tried to have a lucky, I don't know, let's say pair of goggles and I kept forgetting my lucky things. <laughs> so I said, this isn't working for me. Uh, so I, I, I was never really superstitious about, you know, things. Um, but definitely loved having that routine as, as, having it be built to set me up in the best way possible. And, and also, you know, having the flexibility to say, Oh, I couldn't do this part of my routine. That's okay. I, I'll live without it <laughs> because, uh, I think routines are important, but being able to go with the flow is also extremely important. Yeah. Maybe your superstition was forgetting the things you wanted to have as superstitions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I want to talk a bit more about 2008 as well, because I was, I was looking at the team that you had together for that four by 100 medley relay. That's a pretty impressive team. Natalie Coughlin there, Dara Torres, Christine Magnuson. What did you learn from some of those great swimmers? It, it's something amazing about relays is that it's not about you. <laughs> it's <laughs> not about individual performance. Swimming is such an individual sport, but the relays are our one chance to connect to the team as a whole and to let that energy pull you into a higher level of performance. And so, you know, that was my first relay which with such an amazing roster of <laughs> amazing women and and I remember you know 
being there with uh, Derek Torres and being like, wow, you know, Natalie Coughlin, wow, you know, it's just such a, uh, and then, and then me, like, how am I part of <laughs> this team? But just definitely learn the power of, you know, combined effort and combined energy and what, what that can do for your performance. Cause the medley realized always the last day and last day of an eight day competition is, is like pain train. <laughs> <laughs> I think every, uh, relay at the Olympics, both, both times it's like, well, like, I need you girls. I need you girls to carry me through this because my body has shut down long ago. And uh, if somehow you're still able to put forward that performance. It's really quite amazing what your body can do. Hmm. So as you were growing up as a swimmer, did you have any role models, both in swimming and out of swimming, who you looked up to? My biggest role model was always my big sis. <laughs> she was the one that got me into swimming in the first place. And I always wanted to be like her, like, like a typical younger sibling. Um, and so, I, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I, I never really looked at what a lot of other swimmers were doing. I don't know if I just didn't know enough about swimming when I was young or, uh, or what, but definitely looked up to my big sis. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. More from Rebecca in just a moment, but I want to use this time to tell you about Sportuccino. Sportuccino is a sports chat show that I host on Facebook Live, YouTube, and crucially at sportuccino.com every single weekday. We cover all things related to sport, and we've moved to a new time. We're now at 4 p.m. GMT. That's 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific if you're in the United States. Give us a listen, sportuccino.com, on YouTube and on Facebook. Like the Facebook page as well. It is all about everything to do with sports, health, and fitness. Go and check it out. Sportuccino, S-P-O-R-T-U-C-C-I-N-O. All right, let's return to the conversation with Rebecca Sony. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. 
Moving on to 2011, you absolutely dominated those World Aquatics Championships, 100 metres, 200 metres, breaststroke, the relay as well. Just uh, everything seemed to click there. Um, was the success of the uh, Olympics in 2008, did that help you with confidence? What, what, what all went right there? Um, that's a good question. I think, you know, at that point, 2008 was a few years ago and, and it, you know, it's always challenging coming back from an Olympics and yes, it, it was an amazing experience and you know, a lot of confidence for sure. But then you come back and it's kind of a slump for, for a while, you know, nothing's quite as exciting. And, and so, I mean, during those few years in between, I finished college, I became a quote unquote professional athlete. And so I think by 2011, things were, you know, as a professional athlete, you're only living on a four year schedule. And so everything's geared towards that, uh, that Olympics. And so by 2011, I think I really just got everything dialed in as far as my training and, and, you know, where I needed to be and things just kind of, I guess they kind of clicked <laughs> and it was just going well, feeling good and just went with it without overthinking it. Yeah, you mentioned there about um, you weren't studying anymore, you'd graduated. How difficult was it back then to to uh, cope with the studying and all of your lessons, everything like that, as well as training to become an, an Olympic champion? You know, I, well, first of all, I didn't approach it as I, I'm training to become an Olympic champion because <laughs> um, that was a lot, probably would have been too much pressure. But honestly, I liked having the challenge and I liked having the distraction. I know a lot of swimmers that say, oh, I'm going to take this year off to focus on swimming. But to me, I could have never done that because that was too much swimming. <laughs> you know, for me, I needed to leave the pool and have something else to distract my mind or else I would just think about swimming. And that certainly was a challenge after I graduated from USC and you know, became a full-time athlete was that I, you know, I was just swimming. <laughs> and so I had to, you know, fill my life with other things that created value aside from swimming as well. But when it came to the workload of d dealing with college and swimming, I, I, I actually really enjoyed um, the challenge there. What were those other things you created as value? Uh, I mean, it, it had to be based around training at that point. So I really got into, uh, yoga and into trying to create my own like workout outside of practice routine. So I was just diving into like learning more about the body and what I need and what works well and what doesn't work well. And while that was, you could say kind of swimming related, it was all separate from what happened at the pool. And so just bringing value into, you know, the small everyday things that I needed to do, but uh, separating them from swimming a little bit. Mm. So, of course, you're using yoga now, you're using meditation, using all those type of things. What were some of the things you tried in that period which just didn't work for you? Uh, you know, I, I, a lot of swimmers really enjoy weights and getting into the weight room. And I, I'd done that through college and I tried it, but um, I found that I was kind of better off without it. <laughs> so I 
you know, I did lightweight stuff and I did a lot of functional movement, but not lifting and not heavy weight stuff. So that was certainly something that I was happy to <laughs> let go of. <laughs> so the London Olympics, amazing Olympics in London, is a role reversal here because back in 2008, you were just looking to get your best performance, maybe to come second because Lysel Jones was the favorite. Going into 2012, you've just won all three gold medals at the the world championships how much pressure was there on you it was definitely a lot of pressure and while you'd think that coming back to your second olympics and off of a great year the year before that the confidence would be high and you'd be flying high but in reality the pressure was unlike anything i'd ever experienced uh, thus far in my swimming career and uh, it made it quite a challenge to overcome that i think that that actually the olympic trials to make the 2012 team was probably the most miserable meet that i've ever experienced because of that pressure and you know not only is it your pressure and your coach and but now I had sponsors and I had you know obligations to these companies that were supporting me and I you know to perform and so the pressure was certainly there and you know it took a lot to manage dealing with and coping with and and learning how to thrive under those conditions Mm, what were the type of things you tried to do to help I remember uh, after trials, I kind of had a little moment and said, okay, if the Olympics is going to be like this, I don't even want to go. That was miserable. Let me see if I can, you know, kind of adjust and refocus and redial so that the Olympics is a much better experience than trials was. And I think it just came down to how you're mentally, you know, talking to yourself, your self-talk, what you're expecting, what you're, you know, how you're approaching things like the sponsor obligations where they're endlessly asking you and filming you and saying, well, do you want to, do you hope to win another gold medal? It's like, I'm not going to say no, (laughs) but at the same time, if I say yes, that's accepting a lot of pressure. And so, you know, learning how to deal with the interviews and the media in a way that didn't let them kind of impact my personal self-talk and perspective and I think that just takes a lot of of self-work and reflection and kind of mental training to say I have this kind of you know this mindset and it's it's protected from the outside world because it's really easy to adopt things from other people and especially when they're asking you things that make you think in a certain way that doesn't necessarily uh, come well with your personal intentions so just getting really clear on you know what am I doing here why am I here what do I know I can do and ultimately it proved to be a very successful game for you two golds one silver but it was the silver which came first and it's interesting on some of the conversations I've had on the best in the world how people can view silver in in so many different ways and they can they can view it uh, at that moment you know when they're when they're in their one of their early games they look at a silver success when they're in their kind of later career they very often look at it as a failure because they were really going for the gold Um, when you got that first silver at London, um, having gone in as a a three-time world champion from from 2011, um, what was going through your mind then? Was that a success or was that a failure for you at the time? Uh, That was certainly a failure (laughs) (laughs) at the time. And at the same time, the 100 breaststroke was never my specialty. So if that had been the 200, I would have been 
devastated, absolutely devastated. I'm very attached to the 200 breaststroke, but the 100 was always just like, okay, awesome. It's a second event. It's a, you know, it's, it's just another one to get me ready for the 100. And so there was a lot of things that I did well in that race. And in the end, with whatever my body was going through at that moment, I was I was pretty happy with the swim. It just was unfortunate that it was a silver medal, not a gold. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, I, I really love that I was a part of that race and that I was a part of that moment because it really just felt like such a great moment in the Olympic story and the Olympic spirit and you know the (laughs) the dominant USA athlete gets overthrown by Lithuanian 15 year old like that is Olympic glory all over it and so it was cool to be a part of that moment and and in the end I, I took away the things that I did well from that race and you know was able to reset and come back for the 200 which was to me the main event. And that is one of the things which I think a lot of people remember from those games as well. So you were involved in that piece of history. Yes. So those those two hundred meters was was that the uh, yeah? How was that whole experience when you won that two hundred meters, retaining that title? <laughs> it it was an amazing moment. I think equally important to the title was. I had a personal goal that I wanted to break 220. I wanted to go under two minutes and 20 seconds, which had never been done before by a female. So that, you know, that was a number that was in my head for a long time. I want to say almost 10 years. <laughs> and especially since, um, graduating USC in the last three years of my training, it became a real focus. Like, okay, this is what I want. This is the goal. This is the thing that I want to do with my swimming career. How close did you come to it, Rebecca, before the, before this day? In Beijing, it was a 220.2. So two tenths away <laughs> from it four years before. And then I didn't touch it for four, four years. So I went into London saying, okay, I'm four years older. I'm 25 now, which is certainly not old, but it's, you know, as far as swimmers go, can you really perform that well? You know, I don't know. I haven't done my best time in four years, but I'm choosing to believe that I can. And so, um, it'd been four years since I'd gone that fast and I essentially trained four years for two tenths of a second. (laughs) But, uh, the, the interesting story here is that, um, I, I wanted that so bad that I came up with a plan that I'm going to, I'm going to do it in semifinals because semifinals are less pressure, you know, finals, it's all about the medal and the place. And, and, you know, that was certainly a goal and something I, I knew I could do, but in semis, like, let me just go for it. I, I like to feel good in semis and, I think I got it. And so what turned out to, you know, go into that race and I felt amazing and warm up felt great. And the race itself felt amazing. And <laughs> I remember touching the wall and hearing the crowd at semifinals. And I thought, Oh my gosh, I did it. But I broke in a world record, but I went a 220.00, which was incredible for two reasons. One, because I wanted to break 220, so one 100th faster, and I would have gotten my goal. But I also realized that in the race where I felt absolutely perfect, felt like everything came together, it was my intention, my plan, everything was about, you know, breaking or, you know, breaking 220 in this race. Uh, but the way that your mind works, you actually, you know, you don't hear words like don't or break. Uh, it's kind of like when you say don't eat junk food, but all you hear is junk food, junk food, right? And you're, <laughs> you're craving gummy bears. But 
it's the same way that I had been for 10 years saying break 220. I should have actually been saying 219, 219, 219, because mm. my brain was just saying 220, 220, 220. And so in the one race where I felt perfect and I was aiming to get this goal, what actually happened was I got an exact what I asked for of 220.00, which was kind of mind blowing, gives me chills even now, now <laughs> to think about it. So I got pretty close. Um, and while you might think that that would set me up for finals saying, all right, I got this one, 100, that's nothing. Uh, but it actually kind of did the opposite <laughs> within the 24 hours before finals. Um, I kind of spiraled downwards <laughs> and oh, wow. got all up in my head as far as, you know, I always swim better in semis. I'm usually faster, which means, you know, I might not get it all the while knowing that I could still race and I could win and I would win <laughs> having the confidence there. But as far as going under 220, I kind of convinced myself that that was all that I had. And so uh, it was a tough 24 hours and I came back to finals that night and felt terrible <laughs> where the day before it felt great. And, and I remember just having this moment before the race and thinking like, I don't think I can do this. <laughs> right? And it was actually the moment right before the race started it was that quiet moment when the pool gets quiet you know you're one foot up on the blocks and you're you're about to go and I remember thinking oh my gosh I'm feeling not good <laughs> this is not good let's just get this over with and you know that quiet allowed me to to hear that I was telling myself I couldn't do it so it was you know a quick noticing saying what what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Why are you talking yourself out of it in this one moment that you've been training for, for 15 years? Like who cares what the circumstances are? It's, it's all about what you think really. And so from that moment, the self-talk changed to doesn't matter how you feel, you can do it anyway. And it doesn't matter how I'm going to do it anyway. It doesn't matter if I feel like absolute crap, I'm going to do it anyway. And you know, it was that self-talk that really saved that whole race because I I ended up swimming the most one of the most painful races in my life but <laughs> touching the wallet at 219.5 so half a second uh faster when even on that third turn I was slower than I was the day before so it was all in that last lap somehow <laughs> dropping half a second uh which was really quite amazing to think that you know in a race that felt absolutely horrible actually turned out to be uh, the best race. Oh, that's amazing. That that moment you're saying when you're on the blocks, when it goes quiet, it sounds like you had a thousand thoughts in your mind in such a short period there. Is that the moment when most swimmers get very, very nervous? Uh, I think it's way before that. <laughs> Both in Beijing and in London, you know, you I definitely start to feel the nerves, like the intense finals nerves, the moment semifinals is over. So 24 hours essentially of, of, you know, what could be negative self-talk and you really, uh, you really got to learn how to control that in order to, to be the best at what you do. I know a lot of elite athletes have, have experienced this and, and have, you know, naturally created their own way to handle this, but yeah, it definitely starts, uh, a lot before, <laughs> like a good, a good day before, uh, the finals what's your tip to handle it just listen hear it uh, just like I was up on the blocks and I you know we have this thought process going through our head constantly and we don't listen to it we don't 
we don't hear it, but what it's saying is having a massive effect on how we are functioning, performing, experiencing the world around us. Uh, so my biggest tip is just tune in, listen, uh, hear what it's saying, and you automatically will change it once you hear it. If you hear yourself telling yourself you cannot do it, you're going to get mad at yourself <laughs> and say, damn it, I can. <laughs> and you, you said about changing the mindset from 220, 220, 220 to 219, 219, 219. How have you used that experience in your life now and everything you're doing as a mentor? Yeah, I think it, it comes to setting really intentionally worded goals. And, that, you know, goals are certainly an important thing. Setting goals, everybody kind of does it differently. Some people set goals outwardly and they want people to know they need that kind of reassurance. Other people like myself are inward about it. And, you know, in, in the end, I think setting goals is really just making sure that it's a fun way of doing it, not a stressful way of doing it. Uh, so for me, I kept my goal really personal. I didn't tell a single person, not even my coach. Granted, my coach knew and he was training me to go like 218 probably. But, uh, you know, I never had that conversation with him that said, hey, this is my goal. It was that personal. But it was it was that personalness that made it that much stronger for me. Oh, that's interesting. And of course, as you mentioned at the start of the show, you retired in 2012. Just to explain to our listeners how that all came about, because you, you were 25 at the time, I believe. Yeah, so I, I knew going into London that this was my last go. Uh, there were a couple of reasons that I decided to hang up the suit. And in a way, I... I I love that I was able to go out on top, let's say. Um, it just It's something that I think I felt good about and it felt like a good time for me to, to move on. But I think the biggest thing was that, you know, my, well, two, one, my body was <laughs> saying, I've, I've had enough of this. I need a little bit of a break. Um, but secondly, the whole experience of going to a second Olympics and the pressure to perform, I, I had the sense of, you know, if you do it again, the world record, the gold medal, um, then you're just performing up to expectation. You're not doing anything new. You're not pushing the boundaries. And of course, there are ways that you can push the boundaries and, and make it new and exciting. But to me, it was you either do the same or you suck, <laughs> or you failed, right? Uh, and while that's not necessarily the case, I, I think that, you know, the challenge of swimming was, uh, it was kind of like checked off, like, okay, done. Uh, what can I do? Do it again. Well, I don't want to do it again. I want to do something new. And, and, you know, it's not like, let's say rock climbing, where there's might be a bigger rock to climb. The Olympics is the Olympics. And I felt like I'd done all that I can. I felt like I gave all that I had. And I was ready for a new challenge. So I knew going into London, it was it was the end, good outcome or bad outcome. And so, you know, to to walk away from swimming was certainly still tough, even that I knew, uh, but it, it still was was very very tough transition, which I know a lot of athletes can relate to. Uh, but but it was something that was was planned and it was going to happen regardless. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I would ask you what your goals are now, but as you just told me, you, you keep them to yourself, so I won't ask. But <laughs> you, uh, you, you're doing your work with Rise, and of course, you've also done some work before with the United Nations Foundation Girl Up campaign. Just how important is it for you to be, to be giving back? 
It's, it is very, very important. And I, I, I know that I can give more and I, I've been so wrapped up in, in building my business right now that I do still crave that. So I'm glad that I have, um, had that work with Girl Up. And Girl Up is a great foundation and it got me, you know, it gave me a chance to connect with something bigger than myself and to experience some things. I got to travel with them to Guatemala and see these communities that, you know, you can see them on TV or online, but it's it's a totally different experience to be there with them and to feel them. And, and so it's definitely an amazing experience. I know, you know, I know uh, as we're talking about it, I'm thinking, oh, maybe I should make my goal to, be, <laughs> to bring more of that back into my life and to kind of balance the work that I'm doing with Rise. Uh, but yeah, it is, it is incredibly important. And, you know, it's kind of a win-win because you're benefiting the world around you and your community, but also massive benefit to you as the individual doing it. Well, it's certainly been win-win talking to you today, Rebecca. Really appreciate all of the knowledge you've passed on and the stories of your amazing career. Just before we go, can you tell us how we can continue to learn your great knowledge on social media and also how we can find out more about Rise, please? Yeah, absolutely. On social media, I'm at Reb Sony, R-E-B Sony. Uh, that's on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you know, all those. <laughs> and uh, Rise, you can find us at riseeliteathletes.com or social media is at The Rise Life. So you can uh, definitely check all that out there. And we'll put links to all of that on the podcast description page as well. Rebecca Sony, thank you so much for being on the show today and thank you for being the best in the world. Thank you. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Now, as I mentioned, Rebecca Sony isn't the only swimmer I've spoken to on The Best in the World with Richard Parr. We've got a pretty impressive list of guests when it comes to the world of swimming. I've spoken to Natalie Coughlin, Stephanie Rice, Nathan Adrian, Tom Shields, Robbie Rennick, Nick Gillingham. Go back and listen to them all on iTunes, Best in the World with Richard Parr. Subscribe to it and give us a rating and review. That would help a lot. We're also on Acast, acast.com forward slash best. Go and check both of those out. And of course, like our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash best in the world. (laughs) Best in the world, not just best. And also, we've got lots of other interviews with people from all different sports, from cricket to rowing to sailing to rugby. You name it, we've got it on the best in the world. So if you want to get better in your sport or just in your everyday life, go back and listen to the back catalogue. All right, I hope you have a wonderful week. We will be back next Wednesday with another episode of The Best in the World with Richard Parr. Goodbye. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.